I'm talking about a place where you call in to complain and you're only allowed to mention potholes, say, 40 times a week and then that's it <laughs> on potholes and you have to move on to generators and animal behavior and things like that. And I can tell you, we could make a fortune selling advertising space on such a thing. Mark, how's it? Good morning. Good morning, Tim. How's life down there in the coolest of Karoos? <laughs> Why do you think it's down? Why do you look at the Karoo as down? Yeah, well, I look at a flat map, okay? You know, I can remember once wanting to book a flight from Eastern Australia to Los Angeles. And the person in right. front of me was looking at this flat map and said, this is, that's a hell of a long way. So I said, no, pick up the map and turn it around. You'll see that you can fly around the back of the map, if you like. Okay. <laughs> um, but no, I'm a, I'm a flat earth society. We see, uh, we see <laughs> Joe Burgers above Cape Town. That's the end of that. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm Tim Cohen. I'm the editor of Business Maverick. I'm speaking to Mark Barnes, who is a investment banker. We're talking about the stuff that happened over the past week. Mark, an enormous amount of stuff has happened over the past week. Even by South African standards, it's been a chock-a-block news. But I guess the big, for me, the big number of last week was the GDP figure, basically because the median expectation was a contraction of 0.4%. And what happened was a contraction of 1.2%. This is for the last quarter of last year. That is a big miss, right? That is a big miss. Yeah, I think we're underestimating the impact on the consumer of inflation, the cost of money and unemployment. All of these things don't bode well for a good economy, as we know. And I think there's, a, there's now a capital issue as well, which you're seeing quite steady withdrawals or at least non-new foreign direct investment. Okay, and so... All of that stuff starts making for a soggy bottom. Yeah, that's right. And the obvious cause is that we're slightly underestimating, it looks like, or, or the, the economists of the country are slightly underestimating the effect of level six load shedding. We know about load shedding, but there is a big difference between average level three load shedding and average level six load shedding, and it's not linear, I don't think. Maybe it is linear. No, it's not linear. I think it's got tipping points. I think, for example, at a personal level, my inverter doesn't recharge enough at stage six. It's fine at stage three, but at stage six, there's just not enough time to recharge the batteries. That thing is not as functional as it was. And I can only just imagine manufacturing proceeds and things like this, where you have a limit of tolerance or a limit of capacity for diesel or generator or solar-driven power. Yeah. And as those things get breached, things come to a standstill. And that has a knock-on effect, obviously. You know, I, saw, I read a good story this week about what happens with level six load shedding and why it is that supermarkets can't just put up more solar panels, why they're spending such an enormous amount of money on diesel. You know, there's all kinds of things. I don't realize that if the cold chain breaks down for 20 minutes, 20 minutes, they have to pull the stuff off the shelves. So in other words, if there's any 20 minute gap in the cold storage of food stuff, it's gone. Not to get too personal, I don't have any tummy last week. And someone said to me, I should attribute it to food poisoning. Right. And we all know you can't take something frozen, let it defrost and freeze it again because you have water and all sorts of other yes. contaminants getting into it. And so food poisoning is a consequence of that process you've just outlined. And so, yeah, there is no choice. And that cost also has to ultimately get passed on into really basic consumables. Yes, that's right. We in the business fabric did a story this week about food inflation. Food inflation really has taken off. There's high inflation all around the world, but the aspect of inflation that really seems to be sticky is food inflation, and it's big. In some items, 
we're talking about a 50% increase year on year. Changes lots of things. It changes forcibly, changes your diet. Yeah. Whenever I go to Woolies now, I count the bill in social grants. Okay, I go, okay, how much is my bill? Well, it's 1,200 grand. Well, that's four social grants. Okay. And so you start figuring out what kind of trolley mix or basket mix you need or can afford. And that starts having consequences for healthcare, having consequences for all manner of food composition afflictions, if I could call them that. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> yes, doctor, no, let's not have too many details on the consequences. Thank you very much. All right, so there's also big international news, and this, this bank that I didn't know existed has gone bankrupt, <laughs> and apparently it's a big deal. This is the Silicon Valley Bank in the States. So every time a bank collapses, everybody thinks, oh my God, it's 2008, we're going to go through another sort of banking crisis. You know a little bit about banking, I suspect. As my memory serves. Yeah. <laughs> it's a top 20 bank. It's a top 20 bank in the US. Really? Um, and the name should have warned us. Silicon Valley Bank. Okay. It's not a banking world that. Okay. Here's the issue. A lot of the new and attractive assets don't lend themselves to debt financing. They're equity risks. Yes. And so when you suddenly have to liquidate an equity risk to repay a deposit, which is a financial risk, then you've got a mismatch and you become a forced seller and then the whole pack of cards starts crumbling. And so I think what we found is that banks have been wrongly tempted into assets which are not typical or not appropriate for debt finance. And and all of these wizard assets, all of these new ideas, all of these startups do not lend themselves to a predictable cost called interest. Set aside then the compounding effect of an increased interest cost, which has happened almost continuously for the last 18 months in the U.S., and elsewhere. Yeah. And so you compound those two things, something that couldn't pay interest in the first place because you were looking to capital growth rather than the cash flows. And one of those has to get called in because of whatever reason it falters. And the gearing in the bank's balance sheet just doesn't permit it. And so you have a collapse. Now, the question to me is what should we do about it? Because first of all, banks shouldn't be able to lend that kind of money because it's not bankable. Yeah, yeah. But start with this. Start with what the... American government has done about it, and that is that it is a guaranteed depositors cash in full. So this is beyond the normal bank insurance. Yeah. This is different. I think it's significantly different from what happened in the financial crisis, because in the financial crisis, what they did was they opened the discount window very wide. In other words, they saved the bank, its management, its shareholders, everybody. In this case, what they're doing is they are protecting depositors only. So bondholders and shareholders get nothing. So it's a different kind of bailout. What do you think? I absolutely support the difference. Okay. Last time around, as you say, everyone who was complacent, if you will, in the, in the formation of that collapse was given a free reign, like a free pass. And that's bullshit. Okay. Depositors need to be guaranteed. I mean, in a perfect world, you should say depositors beware. But actually, the construct of banking is that depositors don't have to beware because you've got a bank, a licensed bank, which has got proper oversight. And so... Depositors, because you've got a banking license, same as in South Africa, you can go and deposit the money willy-nilly because the bank supervision has made sure that they're all in order. This turns out not always to be the case and not always the overseer's supervisor's responsibility, the fault, if I could say that. So yeah, rescue the depositors, let the rest go down the river, but you cannot afford to let a bank, even a bank smaller than this one, fail because the systemic risk of that, if there's a fundamental breach of trust 
between the public and the banking system, then you have a collapse which is beyond affordable. Yeah, yeah. I remember one of my colleagues, Hilary Joffe, told me once, she was very good on this, and she said, you know, actually a bank has only one asset, and that's its reputation. Once its reputation is gone, the bank is gone. Which is very interesting. I saw last week there were a lot of South African banks reported, and they are going gangbusters. Yeah. The Standard Bank said their earnings had never been higher, their profits had never been higher. What worries me about this, I wonder what you think about it. These are very good times for South African banks in the short term. Interest rates have been going up in the early stages of an increase in interest rates before it starts affecting the economy. I think it helps banks, right? Tell me if I've got this wrong. You can see that in the results of South African banks, which by the way, like we're talking about something that happened 18 months ago, right? Yeah. Because it's for the past year and then there's a little gap between the time that the year ended. So this is all prior to average level six load shedding. I don't expect there'll be contagion. South African banks don't bank in the same way that Silicon Valley Bank banked. Yeah, look, look, I think a couple of things. Inflationary times produce inflationary earnings. So it would not surprise me if everyone's earnings are higher than they ever were because inflation and a weak currency for starters. That would be the first point. I actually think South Africa's major banks' balance sheets are idle. I think there's less opportunity than there was before. But when you've got a high interest rate environment, your margin, your return on assets is higher and the leverage in your liabilities results in a higher return on equity. Right. Okay? I don't want to get into a you know, number example of, of, of that. But so well, banks are having good times, but I think they're overcapitalized in terms of sitting on all of that cash is ultimately going to feed through to lower earn in real terms. But isn't that a good thing in these circumstances? Don't you want that in the circumstances of an economy which is going down? That would all be true if those who needed the money weren't getting it anyway at the wrong price. So what we have is a situation where the banks have stuck their rules as they must, and they've been cautious as they must be. And yet the economy out there, because of unemployment principally and because of the various things that we all strike, that all these strikes are about wage increases and inflation and consumer costs and such, because of all of those things happening, we have people who are prepared to borrow money at exorbitant rates and people, more importantly, who are prepared to lend them that money. Yeah. And that is an economic destroyer, not an enabler. So we have this parallel system of funding our population. And at the one end, we're too conservative, arguably. And at the other end, you just need to eat. So you borrow the money and yes. come hell or high water and we'll worry about the problem later. We'll have a student loan, which we'll worry about repaying later. Can I tell you my shipping story, which is relevant to banking? Yeah. Okay. So this is the position. In the 19th century sometime, the British Navy then ruled the world and it was a very big institution. And the Admiralty decided that they needed a book with every conceivable situation in it, with instructions on what to do in those circumstances. So they set about at enormous expense writing this absolutely enormous book with absolutely everything that could happen to you. And then all you have to do is just look it up in the book and then you can see what you do in these circumstances. For example, if your mast is broken and you are in a lee shore in a gale force wind, you look up in the book and it says, drop the anchor. So then there's the next thing is what happens if you're in a lee shore in a gale force wind with a broken mast and a broken anchor chain? And the book says, 
do not find yourself in this position. (laughs) (laughs) I always remember about that story when I think about banks that are in trouble. The thing is, if you are in this position where everything is blowing against you, you just don't fight yourself in that position. That's the only solution. I don't think that book's got a place. There was a fabulous article written about airmanship. It was either in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, I forget now, which talked about the experienced pilot. And so I think none of that matters if you've got an experienced captain of the ship. But first of all, he ships in order. And second of all, he knows what to do because he's experienced. Okay, so what does the captain do? We're about to sink. He goes, bring out the manual. Rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to know what to do if you're in charge, man. Instructions, rubbish, experience, everything. All right, so this week really wouldn't be complete if we didn't have our section, which is I Just Can't. And my I Just Can't this week is the Nihawi strike in the hospitals. There is a reason why nurses are not allowed to strike. Already four people are dead as a consequence of the strike. Obviously, everybody wants nurses to earn more, but they don't have to walk around hospitals with shamboks, shambocking doctors and not allowing emergency patients to get through. It's just thuggish. I don't know that there's anything more to say than that, but... It is. It's shambolic and disgraceful, but it's just the boiling over of a pot from another source, okay, so to speak, the S-O-U-R-C-E. And so there is anger and violence that's building up in the system as a composite result of extraordinary frustrations and difficulties and things and so on. And of course, you have to have a medical system that's functional and you can't, for goodness sake, attack the Florence Nightingales of our world. It's far more difficult to solve because, you know, you sort of can't afford it, these increases, unless you take more from the taxpayers and donate it to that cause. While we're on the subject of strikes, though, these students are getting out of hand. But again, it's not a simple matter. Okay. I went both to WITS and UCT, and when I look at the pictures of what's happening there, it really saddens me as much as it annoys me. Yeah. But there's a problem that needs to be solved. The cost of education needs to be solved, and it needs to be solved by demand, not by supply. In other words, I'm saying, starting with tertiary education, I'm saying that the ultimate end users of the qualified students need to pay for their education. So if Eskom needs 30 engineers a year, they should have 30 fully paid bursaries for qualifying students who meet continuing benchmark criteria to stay studied, okay? And then you'd have a demand pull for these things and you'd not only get people with fully paid degrees, but people with guaranteed jobs because that's how they they got to university in the first place. So that's one model. And then the people who go to university just to have a job, and university can be quite a lack of job as well. The people who go there for that purpose only won't last longer than six months because they won't pass the first test of how you're doing and are you working. And then out you go and there's no second chances. Okay. So I think that kind of system could work. Well, and then you start going deeper and you go into schools. Education should be for free at school level. It should be a function of the state and private sector can have a choice if it wants to have something else and pay for it. And that's what we've got. And that sort of mix has got lots to criticize about it. But I would say that those would be my views. And students going there and impacting on the ability of others to study really just pisses me off using accounting terms. Listen, I, I think this is a fascinating topic. Let's come back to it because we're quite deep into this podcast. Let's just put a peg in that and remember that because I think there's lots of other aspects to it. And I just want to quickly mention our sort of gossip section. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal. Apparently, New York has this number, which is dial 911 if you have an emergency. 
Well, the New York City has got something called 311. You dial 311. Yeah. And they've just done a retrospective on the weirdest things that they've got or the weirdest calls that they've got. This is just advice to city members. And uh, the one was, I'd like to file a noise complaint against my refrigerator. You know, I sympathize with that. <laughs> yeah, me too. And yeah, refrigerators would have to wait in a queue as you file complaints against the noise of your neighbor's generator. Okay. Those things are invasive. I think it's a great idea. I think we should host it. I think we should have SA311. And I'm not talking about a flight number. I'm talking about a place where you go to complain and you're only allowed to mention potholes, say, 40 times a week. And then that's it on (laughs) potholes. And you have to move on to generators and animal behavior and things like that. Yeah, let's have it. Let's have SA311 where you call in and complain. And I can tell you, we could make a fortune selling advertising space on such a thing. (laughs) And by the way, just if you've been listening to this podcast, you'll know that we do like people to email us and tell us what they would like us to talk about. Mark, that was too much fun as always. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I look forward to your response to the questions. Can I use my medical aid for my cat surgery? Can you please check if my boyfriend is married? What's the best pizza near me? <laughs> and all the uh, related questions. I'm probably better at the questions than the answers. <laughs> Thanks. We'll, we'll catch you all next week. See you next week. Cheers, man. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. The biggest pod network on the continent. For sales inquiries, please contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.